I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Leighton Andrews, former Labour AM for Rhondda and Cabinet Minister, and now at Cardiff University, where he is the Professor of Practice in Public Service Leadership. Leighton, you are originally from Cardiff, aren't you? I was born in Cardiff. I grew up in Barry. What sort of um, family did you have? Did you come from a political family? No, not at all. Uh, no, nothing political about it at all. You know, my father was an accountant. My mother was eventually became a teacher. She didn't work initially, but then after my father died, when I was 10, uh, she, after a few years, um, when we moved to Dorset, she took up teaching. In your education, what did you study? Did you study politics? My first degree at Bangor was in English and History. Then I did a Master's in History in, at Sussex University, where I focused mainly on the history of the Labour Party post-war. Now, I remember the first time I had any contact with you was back at the time of the referendum on whether or not to establish a Welsh Assembly in 1997. And I remember being, I think it was on a Saturday morning, sitting in the Wales on Sunday newsroom, getting a call from Peter Hayne telling me, I think you might be getting a call shortly from somebody who's going to tell you about this campaign which is being launched. And you, of course, uh, Leighton, were very heavily involved in the, as it was called, Yes for Wales campaign. How did you come to be involved in that? Because you had been, actually, hadn't you, a Liberal before? I was actually in the BBC at the time. I was leaving the BBC because I'd, I'd got married, I was coming back to Wales to live... I was still in the BBC, I think, at the point at which probably you and I had that conversation. You were sort of manager, Peter. really, weren't you? You weren't a journalist. No, no, I was, I was the head of public affairs in the BBC. Uh, my responsibilities were for relations with Parliament and European Parliament and so on. Knowing I was coming back to Wales, I started talking to Peter and others about you know, what was being done to create uh, an all-party Yes for Wales campaign. And you know, there, w- there was some thinking going on, but at that stage not very much at a practical level. And so, you know, we started talking and other, with other people as well, Kevin Morgan and so on, and decided that we needed to establish this campaign and got it, got it up and running. And, um, uh, you know, I was able to give some support to that. I set up my own business. I was able to work fairly flexibly supporting it. Were you in the Labour Party at that time? No, I joined the Labour Party after the referendum of 97. It was in probably early 1998. Um, but I wasn't a member of a political party at the point at, uh, when I worked during the BBC. How had you known Peter then? Had you been with him in the Liberals? Oh, I first met Peter ooh, a long time before. Um, it must have been when he was in the Young Liberals in the mid-70s, I should think. At the time when you were running the campaign, what was your view of how the Assembly would be and how has what it's become matched up to your original aspirations? I mean, I think at the point at which we're running a referendum campaign, of course, all we had then was the white paper and the um, legislation for the referendum. Subsequently, there was the Government of Wales Act, which changed a bit from the original proposal as, as it went through. You know, I can remember on the morning um, of the 19th of September, you know, we got the results, as, as you will recall, in the early hours of the morning. We had a, a Yes for Wales press conference at about 6 o'clock in the morning on the 19th of September, 
just to celebrate it and various journalists were asking members of the campaign were they going to get involved and, and were they planning to stand for the assembly and you know I was I was clear that I wasn't planning to do that um, at that stage but there were people there who'd been very involved in the campaign Hal Francis, Val Feld and others who were thinking very actively uh, about it. We didn't know what to expect at that stage. All we'd done was just about win, win a, a campaign for its endorsement by the people uh, of Wales. And it would, you know, things did not develop perhaps in the way that people had expected. I think people had assumed that the electoral system probably would have just about given Labour a majority, although it was, you know, it was, it was not easy to do that under that, that electoral system. And then we had, of course, the election results of 99, where a number of seats that Labour had expected to win, it didn't win. And subsequently, uh, you know, the hiatus in the Assembly, which led eventually to Rodri becoming First Minister in 2000. February 2000, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of what you hoped the Assembly could achieve for Wales, how has what has happened matched up to that? I think it's what it has done is establish a space within Wales where political decisions are taken and a focus on Welsh issues in more detail than existed before devolution. It started to develop over the last 20 years, you know, some groundbreaking policies... I think there was a period in the first decade where it was perhaps too able to rely on the growth of revenues coming from uh, London and generous settlements without perhaps necessarily tackling some of the deeper-rooted problems that exist within Wales, within its economy, within its uh, education system, within its health system. And do you think things have got better since then? Well, I think it's mixed, you know, and I think anybody who looked at the situation honestly would say it's mixed. I think one of the things that perhaps was not addressed earlier on enough uh, in the life of the Assembly was how realistic is it to conceive of economic development policies being driven from the Assembly um, out with the context of the overall macroeconomic strategy being set in Westminster, if you like. And I think there was perhaps a kind of sense of Wales trying to claim more than the Assembly arrangements allowed it to do. Uh, And I think in in retrospect that may have been a mistake. Having said that, there were certain things, policies that Wales pioneered during the post-2008, after the financial crisis, some of the moves to keep workers in uh, in employment, three-act scheme, pro-act scheme, subsequently Jobs Growth Wales, which I think have been positive uh, and clearly were successful in their own terms and that's important to recognise. So just rewind again to um, the first term of the Assembly when you were not a member. Having initially said that you weren't going to stand, of course you did stand in the second election in 2003. What was it that persuaded you to do so? Well I watched you know the developments in the Assembly. I joined the Labour Party in 98. I became more involved in campaigning. I got to know more people in Wales who were active in the Labour Party. I watched the Assembly in its first term. I I felt that perhaps my experience might give me something to offer. You know, I'd worked in the BBC in London. I had understanding of political structures at Westminster and in in Brussels and Strasbourg. And I felt I could make a contribution and hoped I could make a difference. And it took you a little while, as I recall, to actually get into the Cabinet tonight. I think you were a bit frustrated, actually, at the time when uh, you were there, before you got into the cabinet. Eventually you did. You had two spells in cabinet, of course. 
you were initially, weren't you, the um, uh, Minister for Education. Education is one of those challenges in Wales, isn't it, that seems to be intractable in the sense that these PISA results, for example, show that Wales is actually at the bottom of the league so far as the rest of um, the UK is concerned. I mean, there, there, there are better results on there in other countries. Well, why, why is that, do you well, think? I think, the mo- I think the most recent results are actually very positive. You know, I think you saw an 11-point gain in, in Wales's position, and I think that's down to the policies that we started to implement after 2010. I've said this before, I think Wales took its eye off the ball in the period to 2009. I think it it, it eliminated um, forms of testing and it eliminated lead tables without actually implementing effective performance and accountability measures in their place. And, you know, since uh, 2011, um, initially with the banding system of schools and subsequently with the uh, performance measures of schools that have uh, been brought in after that, with the focus on literacy and numeracy, with the focus on tests to, to you know to understand really how young people's performance is developing, which have been carried on by my successors, you know Hugh Lewis and Kirsty Williams, I think we're starting to see, and we saw in the A level results last year and in the PISA results this year, some of that work coming through. But but the reality is that education reforms take a long period to implement, and they take a long period to come to fruition. That's that's the reality of it. My one regret is that that didn't start earlier, particularly at a time when there was more money in the system. Do you think it was unfair that you were sacked as the education minister? And that was, of course, in controversial circumstances where you'd been campaigning in favour of a local school in your constituency, hadn't you? And there was a suggestion that there were double standards being involved because you, as the education minister, were responsible for whatever it was that was disadvantaging the school. Well, the allegation, I think, was that I had broken the ministerial code, which I didn't accept at the time. And all I will say on this now is that I note that other people who have been acknowledged not necessarily to have complied with the ministerial code in its entirety have not lost their places in Cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, you made a comeback, didn't you? And uh, then you were responsible for public services, including, well, obviously, local government. How did you find that job in comparison to the education one? They're interesting jobs to compare. There was a lot more policy work um, and thinking in the educational job. In the public services job, on the whole, there was a lot of lobbying and fixing going on. Uh, and the relationships, you know, you are it's essentially trying to... Uh, drive, direct, persuade, cajole local government to address some of the long-standing issues that are there. In education, you're thinking, you know, you're engaging with original research about performance, uh, you're looking at how best to put in place those policies that will improve achievement, and there is a lot more, I think there was a lot more intellectual satisfaction in the education job than in the public services job. Because, of course, in terms of local government reorganisation, which hasn't actually got very far at all, has it? You were setting out very trenchantly your view that there was the need to reduce the number of local authorities in Wales, but that was huge resistance, didn't it, from, from local government itself, from, from Labour councillors as well as those of other parties. I mean, subsequently, Alan Davis um, was in the same position and he was trying to do the same and uh, got knocked back. Is that uh, a wall that just can't be breached? I think it's a really difficult challenge. And, of course, it predates the evolution. You know, we have a structure that was put in place by John Redwood and, and others, 
and it's proved very difficult to knock it down. In, in, you know, in reality, I would have preferred us not to have had a system of unitary councils across Wales. I think it's a shame that the 95-96 um, reorganisation had taken place before the Assembly because the reality is that different communities need different size authorities looking after different aspects um, of their lives. So it, it becomes a more difficult problem to tackle because it's very hard to say to, for the sake of argument, Merthyr Council, well, you should only focus on these things uh, and to others. And then it's harder still to persuade people that they should come together and join another council. I think it, reform will only be achieved by a majority government in the National Assembly making it a priority. And the view I came to, and I said this publicly in committee when I was uh, Public Services Minister, was in practice you would only get reform of local government when you had agreement between the two largest parties represented in local government, which at that stage were Labour and Plaid Cymru. And I think that's got to be right anyway, because this is actually a constitutional change in, in many respects. Uh, and I think you need deeper consensus than simply within one party, a wider consensus than within one party. How do you think that the people of Wales are being disadvantaged by the current arrangements? Um, and I know, for example, <clears throat> that uh, Mike Hedges, who's a former leader of Swansea Council, now uh, Labour AM, um, he always argues, and I've seen him write this on a number of occasions, that in terms of performance, the size of a council doesn't matter. So why do you think that merging councils into uh, sort of smaller numbers would actually improve public services? Well, you know, it's not necessarily my ideal solution. I think the problem is we are where we are, and there is no, I think, experience around the world of a system going from a unitary council system to a more diverse range of councils with different service responsibilities. And, you know, you can argue the performance point. Certainly in the period that I was education minister, it was very clear that a number of the smaller councils were not performing. We had Merthyr, Blyna Gwent and others in special measures, for example, um, Anglesey at different stages. There did seem to be something about size for certain services. And if you think back to the 90s, you had the uh, larger counties responsible for education and social services, the smaller districts responsible for things like housing and so on. So I think there is something there about scale in respect of certain services. Okay, so we get to 2016 and you lose your seat. Was that unexpected for you? I think it, in the last week, less unexpected. You know, I'd, um, Some of the re re returns we were getting in at the beginning of that week suggested to me that we might be in more problematic circumstances than I'd envisaged. Some of the dialogue I was having with candidates in other places, like um, Alan Davis, for example, in Blaine Gwent, which was also a very tight result, but Alan had a much bigger majority to start with than I did. So at the beginning of that week um, of the election, you know, I started thinking, well, maybe maybe I better prepare a, a, a speech that says uh, says I've lost, as it were. But before that, no, it was, you know, I wouldn't have expected to lose. And I think, you know, I've said, I said at the time, I've written about this, I think there were a number of factors. I think there were local factors, very unpopular local schools reorganisation. There were factors, uh, I think, at a, a, clearly at a, a, across South Wales in respect of what was going on in certain seats with Blyde doing better than expected. I think, as I said before, Leanna performed very well in the debates with Ed Miliband in 2015, which had given her a very high profile. And bluntly, Jeremy Corbyn in 2016 was as unpopular as he was in 2019. Somehow he became more popular in 2017. 
Because I remember at the time when you were the Assembly member there, Run the Labour Party was being held up as a sort of organisational template for the party. And you'd got these um, contact arrangements with supporters in, in, in place. Ultimately, I suppose the fact that you uh, lost that seat demonstrates that however good your organisation is, if the message that you're conveying or there are other factors involved doesn't guarantee that you're going to succeed. I mean, I think the organisational base was still there in 2016. And interestingly, David Tristan, former Chief Executive Plaid Cymru, has did an analysis of the Rhonda election in 2016, what he called, I think, an intensity analysis. And he suggested that, you know, Plaid and Labour in campaigning terms, have pretty much matched each other within the constituency in terms of the the effort that had gone on. You know, I don't think anybody would fault what we were doing as a, in terms of the campaign, in terms of the organisation on the ground, all of those things were, were clear. I think the, the one issue I think that you know, we need to reflect on, others need to reflect on, and I think the referendum vote illustrated this in 2016 as well, is that the the canvassing systems that not just Labour but other parties have developed are really focused on identifying your supporters and seeking to get them out. And I think we were, you know, knocking on doors of people who who said they were Labour and probably felt they were Labour, but on this occasion they were choosing to vote for for Leanne. We didn't get that necessarily back in our canvassing returns. And if you look at the June 2016 referendum, it's clear that you had three million new voters in that campaign. And these were people, I think, who were not being reached by Labour campaigning techniques, you know, in the past. New people joined the electoral register to vote in that referendum campaign. I think uh, it's clear that the Vote Leave campaign knew that, was identifying them, and identifying them with a sophistication that had been lost in in other in in political parties, uh, and I think that's a message for the future for everybody. How long did it take you after the result in 2016 to come to the conclusion you weren't going to stand again? I think I came. I concluded that quite rapidly. You know, I was whatever age I was at that point, 50, coming up to 59. It's a heavy slog being a constituency member and being a minister at the same time. And I'd always known that I wanted to go back into higher education and teach uh, and, uh, and write and, and so on. And, you know, while I was a backbench assembly member, I'd written academic articles and published and, and so on and so forth. So, so for me, um, there wasn't much of a question that that was what I was wanting to do. And I was, I've been in, I was just doing it five years earlier than I'd, than I'd expected, I suppose. But being an academic isn't a doddle. No. Uh, but you're enjoying it. I love it. I mean, I've got, you're right, it's not a doddle. I've got 160 essays to mark in the next few weeks uh, from last semester's teaching. It's very much what I wanted to do. Uh, and it's given me the opportunity to research, to think about things anew, to range quite widely. You know, I teach um, in politics, I teach in business. I've taught in other parts of the university as well and on issues that are related to policy and governance. And... You know, in, in the last, uh, whatever it is now, three or so years, I've published academic articles, chapters, um, and, a, and a, of course, a recent book. So uh, it's given me that. It's given me a platform to write and think about politics and the space to do that. And, of course, you've left the Labour Party, haven't you? I left the Labour Party last year over Brexit and the anti-Semitism issue. I voted Green in the European elections. Uh, I voted Labour in the general election for Kevin Brennan, who's 
been implacably opposed to Brexit from the beginning and, and voted against the uh, adoption of Article 50. I am currently reflecting on whether to rejoin, you know, in, in order to vote in the leadership election. What do you think has gone wrong with the Labour Party? Very broad question. Uh, it's, be- it's, it's, become the, it's become a personality cult, um, essentially, and it's lost its focus on what it is there to do, which is to be capable of becoming a government that can improve the lives of the majority of the working population and population that population who are not in work. How has it been possible for that to happen? Well, it, there was clearly uh, a decay within the party that had been going on for some years. Um, I think there was a failure under Edmund Miliband's leadership to talk about the real achievements of the Labour Party in government from 1997 to 2010. In the early 2010 leadership election, the coalition was able to try and establish the narrative that Labour was responsible for the recession. I think the party failed to develop under Ed Miliband um, in a way that was, uh, that was able to recognise its achievements while also recognising what more needed to be done. And in 2015, the three former cabinet members who stood sounded too much the same, sounded you know, a bit identical, I think, um, uh, and were unable to portray an alternative vision. And, you know, an alternative vision was given that said, Labour is complicit in austerity and we've got to break with that. Do you think it's unfortunate in retrospect that um, people like Urenka Davis decided to nominate Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, a complete and utter disaster. It's not just Yuranka Davis, there are, there are many others in uh, positions of influence within Labour who nominated uh, Corbyn. It, the, the system of nomination at that stage was there for a reason. It was there to ensure that uh, members of Parliament who knew the candidates best would have a view on their electability and then it was open to the rest of the party to vote. Uh, and that system, I think, had worked. But yeah, that was a disaster. And, you know, we've seen the outcome of that in December. So how, although you're not a member at the moment, you're contemplating possibly coming back, what does the party need to do? I spent most of the last three years in terms of my political activity on marches against Brexit. And I was an implacable Remainer. uh, And I think there were a series of disastrous tactical choices taken by Labour and others along the way. And bluntly... Labour and the Liberal Democrats should have kept Johnson in government on the ropes without a majority in Parliament uh, in order to complete the process and we might have ended up then with a second referendum. We, we might have ended up at least with a closer relationship with the European Union than we're likely to. That is now resolved. Remainers, we lost. You know, the general election has happened. Brexit is going to happen. I hate it, but it's going to happen. So therefore, you know, the, the new future for progressive politics will have to be forged in the context of understanding that Brexit is happening, what kind of politics uh, is best placed to reverse the drift to populist authoritarianism that we see in Europe and, and, and elsewhere and some elements of it here in the UK, uh, and what kind of politics is necessary. And, you know, I think those some of those issues are being honestly debated now by some of the candidates coming forward in the Labour Party. Because there are some very specific measures that have been introduced, if you like, which are very much um, against any kind of progressive view about how things should be. I mean, um, we've had a vote which is um, 
effectively to pull the UK out of the Erasmus programme. We had a vote in the House of Commons to stop children being reunited with their parents if they're refugees. I mean, this kind of attitude is very regressive, isn't it? And it is. um, you've now got a party in power which has a, a sizable majority. I mean, one could just envisage that there are all manner of things that might take place over the next five years which, which people like you and I would find unpalatable. Yes, um, and you know, I, one of my hopes would have been that... Um, the People's Vote campaign as it was, which was capable of mobilising a million people on the streets of London, might have, at the right moment, morphed into a campaign for wider constitutional change within the UK. You know, there are a lot of sensible proposals on the table from the Constitution Reform Group and others for a more federal or confederal United Kingdom, but they lack popular support uh, and understanding. And, you know, you had there a campaign first time and able to get people on the streets on the basis of constitutional issues and it would have been good to have seen that morph into something different now a campaign for a radical constitutional reform of the of the UK we'll have to see what happens i think there's going to have to be a lot of cross party talking once labor's resolved its leadership election and people are going to have to say well okay what is what is feasible now the Conservatives themselves are talking about a constitutional reform commission. However, um, if you look at the small print, some of the people driving that are saying it should be made up of people who are committed to Britain's traditional constitution, which I think means uh, the Westminster model. It means a diminished role for the Supreme Court. Um, you know, we don't know what else it means, but those things certainly. And Labour needs to get its leadership election over with and get, get on to the ground of this debate, I think. Because you've recently written a couple of very interesting pieces, one for the New Statesman, one for the Institute of Welsh Affairs, where you're challenging what is becoming a bit of a predominant narrative on the left uh, in Wales as well as elsewhere, that it's taken for granted that post-Brexit Scotland will uh, vote for independence and that there will be a united Ireland in, before very long. You don't think that necessarily is going to happen, do you? No, I don't think anything is inevitable in politics. And that's... We, we make um, the future not in circumstances of our choosing. And that's, that's, that's the reality here. I think that the Conservatives have a plan for the union. I've called it a, an activist unionism of like we haven't seen before. It's been fleshed out in policy papers from uh, the Think Tank Policy Exchange, some of, whose, some of whose writers were involved in drafting the Conservative manifesto. The Conservatives also have, which this dates from latter days of Theresa May, the Dunlop Review, which is was looking at uh, the union, infrastructure spending in the union, things like that. And I think we'd seen a bit of that in microcosm under uh, Alan Cairns in, in the Wales office. You know, the Wales office was essentially rebranded as the UK government in Wales. I think you saw the politicisation of, uh, or attempt to politicise public appointments. You saw also engagement with infrastructure projects uh, and a desire to um, use Whitehall monies um, to drive policy in particular directions. I guess that the difficulty is, from a progressive point of view, that, uh, and I think this was manifested during the, the, the referendum and also during uh, the December general election, that it's a lot easy from a right-wing perspective to have a simplistic 
message that is going to reach people, that people can grasp, than the more nuanced, perhaps complicated message relating in one uh, sphere to um, the reason for staying in the EU. Johnson was using this term, get Brexit done, which may actually be, as as I'm sure uh, you and I would agree, nonsensical, uh, because it's not going to get done very quickly, but it's something that people latched onto, and it came to be an end in itself, this slogan. Whereas actually putting the contrary arguments about the negative impacts that are going to be on people's lives is not so easy to put in such a, a soundbite sort of form. How, how does the left counteract that? I mean, it's certainly true that take back control and get Brexit done have been remarkably effective slogans. Um, they were tested in focus groups by Vote Leave and by the Conservative Party. They clearly were seen to be um, to, to convey a message of what people were, many people, many people were feeling. But you know, in the past, the left parties, left liberal parties in the UK and in the United States have managed to do this. Uh, Clinton had a relentless focus on things like the economy and healthcare and so on in his campaign. Um, Labour in 97 and 2001 managed to do this, a little bit less so in 2005. These, so these, uh, Labour did in 1945. These things have happened. You know, it's about partly about catching the mood. It's partly about being disciplined. It's partly about identifying the things that really matter to people. You know, I think this. I think all leadership elections are important, but I think this is probably Labour's most important leadership election since 94 and 1983. I think it's very hard to see how Labour could come back to win at the next election or with with Brexit, nothing is certain. So I think whoever wins will have to be in for the long haul, as it were. But I think here we also need to focus on what is the future we want for our country, whether that's Wales or the wider United Kingdom. And there needs to be an engagement on, I think, a cross-party now you know, I would like to see something akin to Charter 88 that existed some years ago, pressing constitutional reform, but hopefully with, but with a more significant popular appeal than that. So you're deciding whether to rejoin the Labour Party. Do you think you're likely to rejoin it before the election of a leader so that you could participate, or would it be afterwards, depending on... That's exactly what I'm reflecting on at the moment. I mean, there are leadership candidates who I think uh, have demonstrated over the last week or so that they have things to offer. I think, you know, there are some particularly strong women candidates, both for leader and deputy leader, uh, you know, I, and, and I'm reflecting actively on that at the moment. Is there any particular candidate you endorse at the moment? Well, I, I'm not saying I would endorse anybody at the moment, but I, I you know, my view is that, um, I, although I disagreed with her on Brexit, I think Lisa Nandy has very pen- penetrating analysis of the issues facing the, facing the UK and the issues facing the Labour Party. I would, I would be inclined to vote for her if I were a member. Failing that, my vote would be likely to transfer to Jess Phillips, I guess, who has, has the ability to achieve some cut-through to the wider public. Grace Andrews, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.